We are doing a series, uh, launching today, all right? Launching today, uh, and it's, it's a, a deep dive. Once a year, we take a book of the Bible, and we go, uh, we go quite deep into that book of the Bible. We started doing this two years ago. We did Philippians, uh, we did Proverbs, and then this year, we are doing the book of Ephesians. All right, so my goal is, by doing this, is often what we do at church is preach on a topic and what God says right through the scriptures about that topic. But every now and then, I really like the discipline of us going to a book of the Bible and to go deeper in understanding the Bible and increasing our hunger to read the Bible. My goal is that as we do this over the next four weeks, you'll learn something about the Bible intellectually that you didn't know, but something spiritually will stir in you in terms of a hunger to read the Bible and to get some things out of the Bible. Uh, so the book of the Bible is it's actually 66 mini books that make up the Bible, all right? Old Testament, there's, there is 39. New Testament, there is 27. Uh, in, in the New Testament, which we're going to focus on tonight, the first four are they're called the Gospels. They're about Jesus. They're about the life of Jesus recorded from four different eyewitnesses. Then the book of Acts is all about the early church and how the church began. And then we get into what are called letters or epistles, uh, how many, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the most of them. How many do you think he wrote? All right, this is why we're going deeper into the Word. All right, uh, a little bit of Bible college. He, he wrote at least 13. All right, at least 13. Then Peter wrote some, uh, Jude wrote one, the, the Apostle John wrote some. And now this is what's tricky about the Bible. You think oh, it's going to all be in chronological order, but it's not in chronological order. It's not sequential. So what happens is Paul writes 13 letters, and the way they're listed is not when, when, from when they were written. They're listed from the biggest one to the smallest one. Make sense? Not really, but that's how it works. So it goes Romans, then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So these are from the largest to the smallest, all right? So these letters or epistles, they have different styles. Some are where Paul is writing to a church that's got some serious issues, and one of his disciples visited that church, comes back to him and says, here's the questions they've got and the problems that they've got. And then Paul writes a letter to address the issues of that church. Uh, there's three are pastoral letters. So he writes to young protégés, pastors, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And then four are called prison letters. And these are letters that are written from a prison in Rome. All right, so that's Ephesians is one of those. So we're going to deep dive a little bit into Ephesians tonight, just to whet your appetite. Are you ready to go? Now, Ephesians is actually written to a church that Paul planted in Ephesus. So let's start with Ephesus. First, I've got a little map of where Ephesus actually is. So this is uh, Jerusalem's over here. It's where Jesus did a lot of his miracles, Jerusalem and Galilee. Paul goes on four missionary journeys in his life that, over a period of time. The first one, he goes to this area called Galatians, and he plants four churches. The second one, he's going to go into, now it's modern-day Turkey, but it's actually at that day called Asia Minor. He's going to go in on his second missionary trip to there, but the Holy Spirit says, no, don't do that. Go over to Macedonia. So he goes over, and in this second trip, he plants another four churches in Galatians. 
uh, not in Galatians, in Macedonia. So people like Corinth and different places there. Then the th- on the way back, he drops some people off at Ephesus and he says, I'm going to go come back to you. And this is where he comes for his third missionary trip. He's a church planter. He's, spe- he's spreading the message of Jesus all around uh, the known world. So let's talk a bit about the city of Ephesus. It's in modern day Turkey. Uh, at the time, it had a population of 200 to 250,000 people. It's a big city. It was called the mother city of all of Asia. It was originally Greek, so most of them would have, the people would have spoke Greek. However, it had become part of the Roman Empire as Rome had gone across Greece and taken over more and more cities. Uh, it was a magnificent city. Uh, I've got a little shot of what the city kind of looked like. It's not there these days. Uh, not far away is a village of about 35,000 people. This is all ancient, ancient ruins. Quick question, who's been to Ephesus, just by the way? Who, who's, yeah. Teresa, God bless you. You can tell us all about it next week when you preach. Awesome. Uh, so th- this is, it's, it's like uh, on the Aegean Sea, there's a river that runs in. It's got a massive gymnasium, as the Greeks like to do. Had a big stadium, had a theater. This theater would seat 25,000 people, baths, markets. And then up this hill was the Temple of Artemis or Diana. And that, this was what it was renowned for, Ephesus. So it was a thriving city. It was like the New York City of the ancient world. It was a connection from Rome right across to Jerusalem. So whenever uh, there was sort of uh, things shipping through, they'd stop in this city. There, the Roman emperor actually had a lot of his, um, of his messengers based in the city of Ephesus so that he could run around, he could from there go and send all of these different messages all through Asia. Minor and that region. So it was a very strategic city. It was also a very religious city. So the Temple of Artemis, if we, if we have a look, Artemis was a Greek goddess or otherwise known as Diana. That's the, what the Latin word for it was. This was a massive component of the city of Ephesus. This is, okay, this is what uh, the the god Diana looked like, okay? She, she had multiple breasts because she was the god of fertility and then lots of idols on her. In the temple of Artemis, this massive temple, uh, there was a statue of Diana that the Greeks believed had fallen out of the, out of the sky and was now in the temple. They worshipped this god. The, this, this temple, if we go to the next screen, this temple up the side of the hill was massive, it was made of marble, complete marble, over 220 years. Uh, it, was, it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would travel from miles to this particular place, larger than a football field inside. I said this morning, uh, seated 25,000. That was actually the theater, not this. This would seat thousands and thousands of people, massive statue of Diana. Uh, it was also where it was the banking center of that particular day. Diana's uh, image was on the, all of the coins. So this was, a, this was the Greek society, very religious, very the worshipping multiple gods. There was 50 gods that were worshipped in this particular city. Uh, sorcery was a big deal. Witchcraft was a big deal. Demonic powers and demonstration was a big deal in the city of, of Ephesus, all right? Uh, so now Diana, she had all these little gods at the bottom because she was known as the God above all gods, the name above all names. Sound a little familiar, right? The name above all names. And so she was, she was worshipped. And this city, she was renowned throughout all of that particular area. Now, the, a lot of people in that city 
because of the practice of dark magical arts lived in fear. And they would, they would bring offerings and they would bring all different things to the gods for blessing and the different gods or, or for fertility. Uh, it was known you, you would go and pay money and get an Ephesians letter which would make you irresistible to people sexually. Now that's not a thing in case any of you are wondering if that's a thing. That's not a thing. All right. But that's, that's kind of what was going on in that particular area. A, a, a worship in the temple looked like uh, worship and priestesses and uh, demonic powers overtaking people and orgies and it was crazy and it was wicked and there was a lot of broken, disturbed people in this city, very religious city. Now in the middle of this city, there's also a Jewish community. Now they believe not in 50 gods, but one God. They kept themselves separate from the rest. They had a synagogue separate from the rest of the town. And so in this particular day and age, the Jews and the Greeks or the Gentiles, as they were known, came against each other. They, they, they came up against and they criticized each other and they were divided and wouldn't connect. That's the city. That's the, the culture of the city. It's wealthy. It's rich. It's influential. It's religious. And it's known for spiritual darkness. The Apostle Paul comes along to this particular city, as I said, on his third missionary journey, and he's, he's bought, he brings along a team, and we're just kind of, it's around 54 AD. He spends three years in this city. It's the longest he spends in any of the eight church plants he's already done on his first two trips. He spends three years here. And his aim in spending time is he actually, he goes into the synagogue and then he goes to a, a, a place and he begins to, to called Tyrannus. And he, every day he teaches young leaders, preparing them to go and take the gospel. Apparently at this stage, Paul's about 50 years old, quite young in modern day terms. But in, all, in that particular era, he was quite old. So he was preparing the next generation with daily training. People like Timothy, Titus, Gaius, uh, Tychicus, Aristarchus, um, and they're all us's, all right? It's like Greek names. So in the New Testament, the Jewish guys were the first band of guys that Jesus trained, but now Paul's training Greeks up to send them out to change the world. While he's there, he writes a book to the church in Corinth that he planted. He works during the day, in, in the morning and late at night as a tent maker, and he teaches during the day. And what happens is Paul, because of the power of God on him, miracles begin to break out in this city. Like miracle. So his handkerchief and his sweat rag from when he's making tents would be going and laid on people, and people would get miraculously healed. He's not just teaching how to follow Jesus. There's a demonstration of power that's around his life. Now, this is a city that's used to power and evil. And so what happens is, and I love this, one of the, the Jewish priests comes along to this city, and he would go around these uh, churches or cities casting out demons that were harassing people. So he comes, he hears about Jesus and how powerful he was, and he, and he comes with his seven sons to a man who's demon-possessed and out of control, goes to cast out the demon, but says, oh, I should use this name Jesus, it must be powerful. So they go to, to cast out the demon, and the demon, so energized, beats up all of his seven sons, and they run away naked at the end of that particular day because of the power of this demon possession. The demon says, we know about Jesus, we know about Paul, but we don't know who you are, therefore you've got no authority. The city encounters and hears this story of the power of the name of Jesus and revival is breaking out in this city. Now, it's not revival, it's easy. Paul describes it as the most taxing season of his life as he's preaching and teaching and being opposed. 
but miracles are breaking out. Uh, the sorcerers of the city, the magicians who, who had a magnificent, or had a, not magnificent, but a very important part and role in this city, are seeing the demonstration of power. They're turning to Christ because he's the ultimate power. And as a mark of their turning, they literally, the Bible says, they bring their magic books and their sorcery books and their Ouija boards. I'm just imagine, but they bring that all and they burn them in a massive bonfire that is worth is $10 million worth of books and equipment. This city is having a revival. In fact, it gets to the point where Demetrius, who's, a, who's one of the guys whose uh, business is to make little idols and he's a silversmith, he causes an uproar because business has gone down the tubes. So many people are no longer buying idols. When they're coming to the city of Ephesus, instead of going to worship at the temple, they're coming to worship and praise Jesus, and a, 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 there's revival breaking out. Some early scholars believe that the church in Ephesus grew to 60,000 people out of the 250,000. I, I can't confirm that, but that's what some scholars believe. So there's this massive revival, and in a powerful moment, uh, the whole city riots at the theater. Can we put a shot of the theater up? That still the, the remains of the theater are still there. So this is, this is the theater in Ephesus that's still there. 25,000 seats. And Demetrius causes an uproar and says, we've got to come against these Christians, these teachers about Jesus, because they're, one, he, he sort of says, they're mocking uh, our God, Diana. And two, they're upsetting our business. Business has gone downhill so much, we've got to do it. So they have a riot. The whole city comes out shouting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul's having this, he describes them as the animals of Ephesus, beasts of Ephesus, because they are so brutal in the clash of Christianity versus the culture of this city. So this, this is the city that Paul plants a church in. Later on, uh, the Apostle John is based there. Uh, Paul sends Timothy to be the pastor of this city, a young leader. He writes to Timothy how to be a leader in this, in this particular city. And it's quite phenomenal. Uh, this estimated 22-year-old 20, so is leading a church of possibly 60,000 people. And Paul is writing to him how to conduct himself. Don't be intimidated. Don't be freaked out. You can, you can lead this church and you can stop it from slipping back into heresy. All right, that, that's a little bit of a snapshot. John ends up there. The Apostle John writes some books there. Uh, what I'd recommend, if you want to know more about the context of when parts of the Bible are written and the chronology the chronology of when they're written and why they're being written, this is one of my favorite books. It's called The Untold Story of the New Testament Church by Frank Viola. Highly recommend. So easy to read and you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. So often if you've read a book of the Bible, you're like, why is Paul saying that? Well, often he's actually just writing in an answer to a problem or a question from a specific church. But not the book of Ephesians. All right, are we doing all right? Turn to your neighbor and say, I know a bit about Ephesus now. Come on. No, you can. You can turn to your neighbor. I know. It's okay. Just, just okay. So let's, let's talk a bit about this, this book. Paul's now, he's planted churches. He's done three missionary trips. He spent the most time in this city. He's got a real passion for it. And he writes a letter from prison that's called a circular letter. The design of this letter is that one of his right-hand guys, in this case Tychicus, or Tychicus, depending on how you want to say it, but it's a Greek guy, will actually take the letter to the church and he'll read it out in the church. 
This is the design of the New Testament letters. In that day and age, 90% of people couldn't read or write. So there was no point sending a letter and copying it and giving it out to everybody. The letters were intended to be read out. So I would, one of the things that I recommend this month as we dive into the book of Ephesians is get the book and read it out loud because the, there's, there's headings maybe in your Bible, there's chapters and there's verses, but when, there was, when it was written, there was no chapters and no verses. That was added centuries later to help us find where different references in the thing. So it's designed, it was designed uh, for Tychicus to rock up and go, guys, I've got a letter for the whole church from Paul. And then it was designed to be going from one town to the next town. To, it's called a circular letter. So it's, and it's broad. And so Paul's sitting in jail, praying daily in, in, in his house arrest in Rome, daily for the churches in this particular area. And he writes four books. One's Colossians. One's Philemon, who's a guy who got saved in Ephesus and helped Paul financially. One's Philippians and one's Ephesians. We're doing okay. All right. So here's, here's, that, that's the background. I find when I know the background... It really helps me understand things when I'm reading it. Oh, that's why you're saying uh, the Jews and the Gentiles all need to be one and get along because they're not used to being one and there's a clash of culture. That's why in Ephesians he says, Jesus, who is seated in heavenly places, high above all principalities, powers, rulers, and spiritual hosts in the heavenly places because this city understands a spiritual hierarchy and demonic powers. And he comes to say, Diana's not the top of them all. Jesus is the top of them all. So he's writing and addressing issues of that day. In Ephesians chapter 1, let me just read out the first few verses, and I want to uh, help us understand. So there's six chapters in the book of Ephesians. Like I say, tonight's a bit of Bible college, all right, just, just uh, to whet your appetite. Teresa said you went home and read it. it. took you 20 minutes. Read it out loud. So you could read the book of Ephesians out loud in 20 to 20, if you're, if you're a super achiever like Teresa, 20 minutes. Maybe 30 minutes for the rest of us humans, all right, but, but you could do that. So Ephesians starts like this. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in. Now, interestingly, some of the, of the manuscripts that were found of this just had a blank. Others had a different name because it was designed to, so he would stand up and say, in Ephesus, or when he read it out, in Laodicea, or in Smyrna, or in one of the other churches. So he would read it out like this, but we know it as the book of Ephesians, because that's the majority of the manuscripts. And he says, May God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ." Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. You can, you can think of the book of Ephesians in two uh, separate halves. Chapter 1 to, through to 3, which will take you about 10 minutes to read out loud. 1 through to 3 is Paul writing and he's telling them, guys, the most important thing that you could know is what it is to be, who your, your identity is as a Christian. Uh, I'm just going to grab a chair right now. Can someone throw me up a chair up here? Thank you, Ben. Oh, you're even your own chair. How, how committed is that? 
Well done, Ben. Thank you. And so he writes to them and he says, guys, when you become a Christian, your old ideas from the Jewish world was that now you've got to follow a whole lot of rules to measure up to God's standard. He says, that's not true. That, that's not the way it is. And, and from the, those who are Greek background with all of these gods and demons and everything like that, they were living in constant fear that they, and superstition that they wouldn't measure up. So he writes, in the first three chapters, he addresses, once you've become a Christian, this is who you are with Jesus. Then he says, once you know who you are, the next chapters he starts to talk about, so once you know who you are, now you can start to walk that out in your day-to-day life. So you, he talks about being seated, then about your walking with Jesus, and then ultimately, chapter 6, he talks about how to warfare as a Christian because there's spiritual warfare. Now here's what I find most people, even in our day and age, when you become a Christian, what we hone in on is, how should I be a Christian? What should I do? How should I walk? What, what will please God? What will make me right with God? And Paul's writing a book to all of the churches, and therefore, if I read it here, I'd say this letter is from Paul, written to the church at C3 Powerhouse. This is the letter that I want the people here in Warana, Kiwana, Sunshine Coast, I want you to know this, that you were chosen before God created the world to come into a relationship with God. When you would come into a relationship with God, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you right before God, not based on anything you do, but based on a gift. This is the message of grace. Let me just really quickly summarize three thoughts of grace. There's three kinds of grace. One kind of grace, and grace is unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. It's not like grace is you didn't deserve it, but you just got a gift that's unbelievable and you haven't achieved it, earned it. It's not something that's your own efforts. It's a gift. So there's the gift on the grace of justification. Big word, but literally justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified means. So the greatest grace on the planet is for every person separated from God, living our own way with things we've done that we're ashamed of, consciences that have been seared, mistakes that we've made, living with guilt, either trying to push it down and ignore it, or trying to make up for it in some way with our charitable deeds that every one of us know deep on the inside of us that we don't measure up to God's standards. The greatest grace is that God said, I'm going to let Jesus die on a cross for you, take your sin, and then I'm going to let you be born as a new creation and everything that's Jesus, I'm going to give to you. And it doesn't make sense. So I want to ask right now, if you're a Christian, so, you know, there's be a stack of people in this room, we're, we're Christians. If we were to get you to stand up and say, who's the holiest? Most of you would probably say Daniel. I, no, anyway. You're like, well, what about, what about someone who's been a Christian a week? Surely they aren't holy. Surely they, they've got a long way to measure up. Here's the reality. The second we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the second 
we confess with our mouth that he's the son of God and he paid the price for our sin. The moment that happens, God says, we're now at the old you died with Jesus and the new you have become a new creation. You're a brand new, you're, you're either one or the other. The Bible calls it this, you're either in Adam, which is the old, separated from God because of your sin, or you're in Christ. There's only two categories. Now, lots of people think there's, oh, there's like 50 categories of Christianity. The really good holy Christians who fast every three days, tithe 55%, turn up to church 15 times a week. They're amazing. Knock on lots of doors. They're like the super Christians. And then they're like, somewhere down 14 or 15 is me. Or I'm a second class Christian. Come on, I, I stuffed up. Somewhere, I, somewhere along my life, I, I did something really bad and, and I'm just trying to make up for it. Here's the grace of Jesus Christ. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you became as holy as him, as holy as him, as holy as him, as holy as her, as holy as him. Love you, Carl. You're awesome. As and you know what the holiness is based on? Jesus sitting on the throne of heaven. Bible says it's imputed to, his righteousness is imputed to you. It's your positional standing with God. Your practical standing means, yeah, okay, now that, now that I know where I'm seated with Christ, I'm not striving to get God's pleasure. I'm not striving to be accepted by God. I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm resting. That's why he says, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. I'm not trying really hard to be accepted. I'm just right with God because what? what? This is the word the Bible says, I'm in Christ. I'm one with God. I'm one with, I, the Bible says, I've got the divine nature now on the inside of me. You're like, awesome, does that mean I can sin for the rest of my life and just have a party? And like, no, 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 here's the thing. Paul said, he spends three chapters on it because he wants to get their head right. If you get your head right, if, if you realize every, he, he says, the opening verses, uh, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's not like the first year of your Christianity, you get five spiritual blessings. Then the next year you get another five. This is not how it works. The moment you get right with Jesus, every spiritual blessing belongs to you in the heavenly places. It's, it's called grace. Undeserved, and you're like, what about, what's that turkey here? How come he comes to church? He's a rat bag. Yeah, some of the stuff he's done, he spent some time in jail. He's, he blew his marriage up. He did this to his kids. He, he did this with his money. And you're like, well, has he put his faith in Jesus? Yes. Seated with Christ in heavenly places. Access to every spiritual blessing. Now, practically, do we have to work out our new standing with God on, an, on a daily basis and be transformed? 100%. Don't ever let someone go, I'm not going to church, it's full of hypocrites. Man, all of us are. This is our legal standing, but now we're spending the rest of our life trying to catch up in the way we live our life to who we are in Christ. And the greatest way to do that, and this is just great preaching, the greatest way to do that is not by trying to focus on how to be a better person. The greatest way to do that is to focus on what Jesus did. He, he forgave me. He made me righteous. This is, so Ephesians, let me give you five things just real quickly. He's given us every spiritual through Jesus, Ephesians 1 verse 3. He's made you holy through Jesus. 
You're like, oh, what about that thing I did two years ago? I'm really ashamed about it. Bah, gone. It's gone. He sees you through Jesus. The blood of Jesus makes you righteous. You, if you're a Christian, are as holy, oh my gosh, as Jesus. You're, you're like, really? Yeah, you should sit up in your chair a little bit straighter when you come to church. You're holy in Jesus. That's, that's the second thing he says. The first thing, you've been adopted into God's family through Jesus. Verse 5. Oh, this is, this is good news. Like in that day and age, if you're a slave, if you're an ex-astrologist, if you're an ex-priest in the temple of Diana, if you're an ex-Jew, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're male, if you're female, you are one in Christ and you get accepted, loved, and welcomed into the family of God, sons and daughters. Oh, see, the other stuff, now I'm preaching. I've got to, I've got to ease up here. Uh, number four, we have been given the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. Oh, I love the Holy Spirit. The mark when you got born again, you didn't have to beg for Him. The Spirit of God. He came to live on the inside of you, to live in your heart, to guide you, to help you. The Bible says he pours the love of God out into your heart. The Holy Spirit's awesome. Number five, and this is, this is the, kind of the pinnacle of this Ephesians 1 through to 3, the first half. Even though we were dead because of our sins, spiritually dead, cut off from God, this is Ephesians 2, 5 to 6. He gave us life when we raised Christ from the dead, when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you've been saved. It's, you didn't do a thing. You didn't do one thing. You didn't earn it. You're not good enough. You're not better than the person beside you. I'm not better than you. You're not better. We did not earn it. It's grace. It's a gift of God. It's the most amazing thing. For he raised us from the dead spiritually along with Christ and he has seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. If you could get this, your behavior would automatically change. You're just like, oh man, what a, what a gift. What a gift to be holy, to be righteous, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be accepted in God's family. What a gift to be seated with Jesus above every problem and demon and every issue. What, what a gift. And so we come, this is what our response is. We're thankful and we, this is why we spend so much time worshiping. Never forget what a gift it is. This is why we spend so much time thanking God for what he's done for us. Thank you, my name's in the book of life. Thank you, I'm cleansed. Thank you, I'm forgiven. It's, a, it's the grace of God. And then out of that, we, we, here's the thing. You don't have to be, or excuse me, God, uh, Paul says, because you're his son or his daughter, you're one with Jesus, come boldly to him. Come boldly. Hey, Dad. Father, I love you. I'm here. And he accepts us. It's the most amazing, amazing thing. That's the, that's the grace that helps us become right with God. Then there's other graces, and we'll talk about those the next few weeks. There's, there's a sanctifying grace, a grace that helps that now become part of my day-to-day -day life. Now, this Ephesians 4 verse 1 says this, work worthy of the calling that you have. Now, now it's about your walk, and then we learn to warfare. And the gifts, oh, so much, so much good stuff in Ephesians. I'm going to call it quits on that right now. I want us just to close our eyes right around the room. Pretty soon we're going to baptize some people. 
And that baptism, what is really happening is we're saying when Jesus died, I died spiritually. He paid the price for my sin. He was buried in a tomb. I'm being buried in water to identify with what he did. And I've been raised to life right with God. It's leaving the past behind. It's saying goodbye to the old you. Does that mean life's going to be perfect now? No. Does that mean you'll be struggle-free? Not for a moment. Does it mean you've now got someone who lives in you who will help you and change you and a peace and a joy will bubble up inside of you because God's in you? Absolutely. You don't have to be guilty. You don't have to be ashamed. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the best news. What I want to do right now, just before we move on in the service, if you're here and you don't have what we've been talking about. See, so many people think religion is about us measuring up to God's standards.